Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're going to be talking about the China Mieville story, Looking for Jake, that was published in 1998. This story was nominated to us by a Patreon supporter, and so I have to say thank you. I mean, I don't have to. I want to. I really liked this story. I'm really glad we're getting into more uh, stories from the collection Looking for Jake. And now we've read the title story. I really loved this story. It's... uh, I don't know how much we're going to have to discuss, but it's going to be such a pleasure to to share with the audience who hasn't read it. So, Glenn, why don't we just get right into it? Yeah, I love this story. This story has haunted me, and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about you know, how this works as a, as a kind of horror story in the discussion. But yes, let's do the recap first. So the first thing to say about this story is that it is written in the first person. It is also written as a letter. It is a letter written to the Jake of the story's title by an unnamed narrator. And uh, here's how it opens. I'm going to read really the, the first whole page of this story. I don't know how I lost you. I remember there was that long time of searching for you, frantic and sick making. I was almost ecstatic with anxiety. And then I found you. So that was all right. Only I lost you again. And I can't make out how it happened. I'm sitting out here on the flat roof, you must remember looking out over this dangerous city. There is, you remember, a dull view from my roof. There are no parks to break up the urban monotony, no towers worth a damn, just an endless, featureless cross-hatching of brick and concrete, a drab chaos of interlacing back streets, stretching out interminably behind my house. I was disappointed when I first moved here. I didn't see what I had in that view, not until bonfire night. And... The narrator goes on from this, then, to give us just a hint of the weird element of the story before he's going to take that away. So let me read that, too. I just caught a buffet of cold air and the sound of wet cloth in the wind. I saw nothing, of course, but I know that an early riser flew right past me. I can see dusk welling up behind the gas towers. And that's it. That, that, that is all that we are going to get of the weird element for a little while, at least. And so at this point, the narrator describes his relationship with Jake. The narrator lives in the Kilburn area of northwest London. It's a cheap area, and he lives in a cheap part of it. He lives in a, a flat above some shops. Jake, however, lives in Barnett, which is the northernmost part of London, and actually quite far from where the narrator is. And this matters right now only to the extent that the narrator doesn't go there. We have no other real demographic knowledge about these two characters, but they do seem to be young, likely in their early or, or mid-twenties. Uh, certainly, the narrator worries about money, but is also excited about living in his own place, uh, though Jake lives with his family, and he has money for books and music. But also, both of them are busy having romances with women. And the real emotional core of this opening is that the narrator misses Jake and wants to find him, and it's clear that Jake has always been something of a mystery to the narrator. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it really feels like Jake and the narrator are best friends. You know, they they talk on the phone all the time. They hang out in North London. They talk about their bad dates or whoever they're falling in love with. I think in our 20s, we had about a million of these conversations. Um, but it also feels like the narrator doesn't really make an effort to get to know Jake. Like, he doesn't understand how Jake makes money or is able to afford the things he buys. He won't visit Jake in his own neighborhood. That's something I kind of understand. I mean, Philly is sort of that way, too. If someone leaves the neighborhood, you might never see them again. You know. But the real issue here is, is not just the fear that the narrator will never see Jake again. It's that something darker is taking place here. And we get that hint at, you know, at the end of this section, there's some garbled noise on the phone when the narrator tries to, to call Jake the last time. Something we're going to point out all throughout this story is just how brilliant Mayville is at weaving in little hints of the weird thing that is happening in this story, but still mostly making it actually about this friendship. And yeah, I think something... You know, you joked about it, Brandon, but I do think that something that really resonates with me about this story is that 
I miss having these types of conversations as opposed to the types of conversations we have now before we start recording, which are <laughs> right. just about such middle-aged drudgery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whether we can borrow uh, money from our wives to go to the bookstore or not, you know, that's <laughs> very different from how life was in our in our 20s, I think. <laughs> but let's talk about some of the, the references here in the opening of this story. You did, I, I'm so glad you read it uh, because it's such a great opening, such a great hook. Uh, we get this reference to Bonfire Night, to November 5th. This is you know, also known as Guy Fawkes Night. This is an important note for this story. It's, it's something we're going to have to talk about, is just what this reference is about. Of course, what it's about in the beginning of this story are the visuals. And the visuals that open the story, including Bonfire Night, all these cheap fireworks going off and lights around Kilburn in London, they really pull us into the scene of longing and, and loneliness, you know, along, you know, right aside this backdrop of, of cheap fireworks, everybody participating in some event. But all those fireworks highlight to our narrator is just these dangerous alleys in London. And again, this is that first note of something sinister, something hissing and gibbering and roosting close by. And so we're in this really uncanny place, you know, that something is wrong in this world, not just that the narrator's lonely and can't find his friend, but that there's something really wrong with the world. And that's something that this story will explore more. Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoy about the, the setting of this story in Kilburn, which is a part of London I have never been in and, and certainly don't know what Kilburn was like in the late 1990s when Miaville was writing this story. But there's a sense here, or I guess really what I'm trying to say is that one of the things that Miaville is playing around with is the weird fiction horror that is happening in this story that we are getting hints of, and just some genuine horror of life in uh, a major city, especially in a poor, perhaps economically distressed might be the way we would describe it, neighborhood of that city, where in some of these descriptions, it's not clear to me, actually, if the narrator is just talking about the fact that he lives in a dangerous part of London before anything weird happens, or if he's actually giving us hints about the weird thing that is going on here. And it's just masterful the way that Mieville does that. And of course, something we have seen Mieville do in all the stories that we have read out of this collection is use weird fiction elements to emphasize and address and draw our attention to actual real problems of of living in London. It is really great, especially because if you're skimming the story, which you know you might find yourself doing with horror stories and short fiction, if you're skimming it, you'll just blow past this the first time you read it. Okay, there's a gibbering thing roosting. Well, that's a pigeon. But we're going to learn something about pigeons later on in this story. You know, there's, there's the phone is dead. Well, did this guy pay his phone bill? Is he going crazy? Is everything he sees not real? You know, all of this stuff is just overlookable. If you're just reading the story and it feels like about a guy who might have gone crazy. And we say guy here, though. There's no gender described or defined in the narrator. Um it feels like they're just going crazy and it's about longing. The story's about longing, but these hints are very specific and very particularly placed uh, to really drive home that sense of uncanniness. Right. Well, at this point now, we do actually get a description of London as it exists now that the, the weird thing has happened. So let me, let me give us some of that. So at this point, Kilburn is largely abandoned and it's, it's dangerous. Now, the narrator still does not come out and say what is going on. And in fact, the narrator never will. But there are flying creatures that are some sort of menace. Uh, and there may also be some other types of creatures as well. And so if you're going to go outside, you you have to be careful. You have to stick to certain types of routes. And this is something that the narrator has actually gotten very good at. And most of London is like this, but in the central area around Oxford Street, people are still living vaguely normal lives. They get up and get dressed and go to their office jobs. The newspapers are still delivered, though delivered by whom? 
Also written by whom, that, that's totally unclear. But the stories aren't really stories, the stories in the newspaper, I mean. And an example of this is a headline that reads, Autochthonic masses howling and wet-mouthed, with the subheadline of Pearl, Feces, Broken Machines. So, you know, there's that. I've actually read that news article. So. <laughs> well, it feels like a prediction of actually what journalism has uh, has turned into 20, 25 years hence. But, uh, at any rate, there is that. And then also we have the radios playing some kind of gibberish. There's also this bit, you know, along with the, the weird newspapers of uh, self-generating rubbish, you know, that kind of goes along with, with news articles. And what Mieville means here is that litter is kind of creating itself in some strange way and that people are disappearing. Um, and, and the way I'm saying that is actually wrong. Like he says, people are disappeared, uh, which may be just a kind of Britishism, but it seems intentional rather than people disappear. People are disappeared and they're going in and out of places. There's some agency at play. Like, are they being eaten by these giant pterodactyls, which is how I imagine them or, or are they literally just disappearing. Nobody knows what's going on or who or what is behind it. But you get this sense that there's just like every dark fairy tale is coming true. And reading this section really reminded me in a both like unpleasant and maybe not entirely unpleasant way of the sort of chaos and simplicity of life also that accompanied the early days of the 2020 lockdowns. Like once you could buy toilet paper. So like June maybe or July, you know, there was all these questions waking up every day that would be like, what rules dictate what I'm allowed to do today? Can I go to the grocery store? Can I get food delivered from restaurants? Is there going to be what I need on the shelves at the grocery store? Is the local distillery still selling whiskey? You know, <laughs> but you rarely saw people out in the streets when you went out. There was litter on the sidewalk, though, and on the roads. Newspapers got delivered, and that was a real time. And, and somehow, like, Mieville captures the weirdness of this to the degree that some of what this narrator describes is something that I feel like I lived through in that summer of 2020, though we didn't have like weird animals roaming the streets. We might as well have, I guess. I mean, maybe we just didn't notice them because we weren't going anywhere, right? <laughs> right. So maybe they were out there. And I think that's a great observation here, the way that this story actually predicts some of our own experiences in our own lifetime. And and of course, something that we will have in front of us here on Elder Sign is actually reading stories that are in response to the COVID pandemic. We haven't read any of those yet. I'm, I'm certain, of course, that people have written them. They've probably been published. We just, I don't know, think two years is probably the most recent that we've ever done anything on Elder Sign, you know, two years from from when we're recording it, and we're just not there yet. But that will be something that I think will be really interesting. And we can, uh, and when we do that, we can actually call back to, to this, which I think will be a great comparison. I think that's a great idea. I think if I were to write a, a pandemic story, I'd you know, look to, to this story, which, which just captures, as we said, uh, I mean, I was in Philadelphia at the time. So much would have it felt like to be in a city that was, that was emptying out, you know, it was just very strange. And even just walking around as this character does was, it felt wrong. It felt uh, illegal, you know, in some way or taboo at least. And I, that's, there's that sense that, that Mieville captures here really well. And, uh, back then it was weird fiction, but, uh, for at least one summer it was real life. And in this case, there definitely do seem to be, you know, flying monster creatures of some sort. And the, the narrator is going to tell us a little bit more about that. He actually starts to recollect when it all started. And he was on a train. And when he got off, something just wasn't right at the platform. Uh, the platform was crowded, uh, but it looked like purgatory. It was a huge room full of vacant souls, just milling, atomized and pointless, each in personal despair. and. No one can explain what has happened. It's just that there's been some kind of a, a breakdown. And it is an apocalypse, but it's not the kind with walls stacked high with corpses. As you said, Brandon, people disappear, but there isn't any blood. And it's much more like the city is winding 
down. And I really, really love this imagery. I mean, it's maddeningly confusing and frustratingly unclear, uh, though, you know, I suppose that will give us some more fodder for the discussion. But nonetheless, I just love this imagery. What I, what I really love about the narrator's like sentiments here is that when he encounters this this breakdown, which we'll get more of, and we're going to get more references to that might help point to uh, point out to us just kind of what is going on or in what manner we can categorize what's going on. But what I love is that the narrator is has this just sense that what he's got to do is find his or her friend. And, you know, there maybe is a sense, or maybe we can read this in a way that the narrator has a kind of romantic obsession with Jake, though that's not clear. What is clear to me is that there's just this sentiment that the narrator has, that they have this friend out there, and they say they want this friend, Jake, to either be their guide through this nightmare you know, maybe because they know the area better than you, like maybe Jake moved out of Kilburn and knew it real well, you know, and moved out or that they could be lost together. And I just think that's a, a gorgeous sentiment here in the middle of this. Like, why is the narrator writing this letter to his friend? Why to Jake in particular? And we get that. The, this narrator thinks very highly of Jake. And I, and I really love that that comes through in this kind of mad story and in this mad moment of seeing this breakdown and feeling like the epicenter of the breakdown is your neighborhood in Kilburn and thinking, I've got to find my friend. The thing that Mayville is is doing here is giving us this story of an apocalypse, this just numinous or supernatural breakdown of the whole world, but really only showing us that as the backdrop for this very human story about living through a, a cataclysmic moment, some moment of complete chaos and fear and terror. And what you want is to find the person you are closest to and caring more about that than about, you know, escaping the situation. And and I think we can all envision something like this happening to us, you know, being at, at work maybe when, uh, you know, some horrible attack of some sort happens and realizing that, you know, because you're at work and maybe you're, you know, that's where your partner is or your, your kids are, are somewhere else, right? That you've got to get to the people that you care about. And it's going to be some kind of effort to, to do that. And you may just never see them again, but having to make this choice of, do I run for safety myself or do I look for my partner? Do I look for my kids, my, my, my family, my friends, what do I do here? And that's really the story that Mayville is is telling. And so he's not giving us the the details of the apocalypse. He's really giving us the details of the emotional trauma of this unnamed narrator. And it works so beautifully. Right. And we'll be we'll be talking about that in the discussion. You know, just just what kind of apocalypse is this? What really has broken down? You know, what is winding down and, and how that plays into what this narrator is going through. Well, I will move us a little bit further into the narrative here so we can get to that discussion segment. So once this breakdown happens, as we've said, the narrator just wants to go find Jake. And so he, he calls Jake's house, learns that Jake has gone out to some bookstore and hasn't come home. And so the narrator is going after him because he knows which shop this must be. It is the shop where they found an immaculate edition of Voyage to Arcturus by David Lindsay. This is a book that we've actually encountered before, Brandon. We've, we encountered this in Gene Wolfe. Uh, it's maybe actually something that we should check out at some point. It just feels like it's a, a reference that keeps cropping up and that we should probably cover. Uh, although also, this shop has books by Kierkegaard, the existential philosopher, and also Paul Daniels, the stage magician. So this also just sounds like the type of shop that we should go to, though also one that doesn't really exist anymore. But at any rate, it is a bizarre journey to get there now that the city is breaking down. The train that the narrator takes just didn't have a driver, but it still worked and you know stopped at all the stops and let him out. And the shop is closed, but the owner is there just kind of hanging around in this bookstore. Uh, but still, the, the owner gives the narrator a clue, and then the narrator, and I have to say this is you know inexplicable, really, but the narrator finds Jake. Jake doesn't know what's going on either. Uh, Jake was in the shop looking at some weird book, 
and then felt something huge just slip away. And Jake doesn't want to go home, and so the narrator says they should go back to Kilburn together. Jake hesitates about this, and this is something that Jake always did. He used to have these vague reasons not to go to Kilburn with the narrator. But of course, the deal here is that those reasons don't exist anymore. And so now Jake says that he just wants to go look at something first, and he even starts to walk off. And the narrator takes his eyes off Jake now because he's distracted by the appearance of a knight on horseback. It's not actually a knight, of course, but it's it's really one of the royal household cavalry who loiter around the palaces in London. And when the narrator looks back, Jake is gone. And he hasn't been able to find him again. All of this, I have to say, Brandon, this is just surreal. And I don't think that I have done any justice to that surrealism, but surreal is really the word that I would have to use to describe this scene. One of the things that Mieville is, I think, relying on, at least as a, an antecedent to this story, is uh, Arthur Mocken's ability to evoke strangeness in the city. I, I don't really have a quote with me right now. We talked about this in Inmost Light, um, where one of the protagonists of that story just kind of wanders around this other city, the sense of liminality of crossing these boundaries uh, from street to alleyway, from the interior of a pub to the outside, you know, from one neighborhood to the other. And, and I, I think that, you know, one of the, one of the keys to thinking about that in this story is, is Mieville pointing out that all the pigeons are gone. And you get the sense that like the, the pigeons came from nowhere in the way that Mieville describes it. And they went back to nowhere. Like where do pigeons even come from? Uh, and then you have these other, they're replaced by these other like kind of flapping beasts. And I think that's part of the surrealism. And it, and, and that also works then with the imagery of the household cavalry, where we get one of uh, a handful of poetic references that we're going to have to go through. And I'll do that in just, just a moment here. Yeah, I like the idea that the pigeons have disappeared and simply had their niche in the ecosystem replaced by demon pterodactyls from hell or whatever <laughs> whatever these flying creatures are. Of course, Robert E. Howard has a story that is literally called Pigeons from Hell that we should probably also cover at some point. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. I, I, there, before we get to the poetry stuff, which I think is really crucial to, to understanding the story, there are a few other references that we should point out uh, in this section. Uh, first is the reference to Gaumont State which is a pretty important building in this story. It'll come up again at the end. That's a movie theater. It's a pretty old one. It's very old, in fact. And all of that is here in the text. But we get now that this is a bingo hall. And then, and so th there's, again, this sense of things kind of changing and what was once this grand movie theater with this giant organ and this, this event space is now just a, a bingo hall that doesn't even play bingo anymore. But then the narrator goes on to compare whatever ha has happened in London, though I think there's no real direct analog for it, uh, to the Union Carbide gas leak in Bhopal, India. This leak killed nearly 4,000 people, and it injured over half a million people in 1984. Uh, Union Carbide was making pesticides at this factory, and there was just a catastrophic breakdown. They just didn't care enough to maintain the facility, and it broke down and leaked out and, and had this massive, catastrophic death and injury rate. And then the narrator also mentions here the Chernobyl disaster that took place in 1986. That was what happened. A nuclear reactor melted down in Ukraine, leading to a huge, you know, ecological and human crisis. And what the narrator is saying that is that something like that has happened in London, but maybe on a more spiritual and metaphysical level. All right. But so that's all the, the, the analogical stuff that's taken place here on a, that the narrator's thinking of. There's also quite a lot of poetry and classical literature referenced here. The first is uh, of Orpheus and Eurydice. Uh, this is the classic underworld story. And this Reference comes at the point when the narrator's leaving the subway, going to find Jake. And and he talks about this idea of looking back, uh, this doom that trapped Orpheus in the underworld, and says that he had no reason to look back. 
the narrator didn't because Jake wasn't behind him and he was moving forward looking for Jake and not looking back has saved his life in some way. But it also really adds to the surrealist imagery of the tube being a kind of underworld. And, uh, you know, then the narrator finds Jake and they have this conversation as we've talked about and they talk about uh, the world ending, not with a bang, but with, with what? And they misquote T.S. Eliot here at the end of this uh, section. And that comes from Eliot's poem, The Hollow Men. What's important about this, there's a number of things, but the, the poem starts with two epigraphs. The first comes from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, but the second epigraph is this. It's a penny for the old guy, which is another reference to Guy Fawkes Day and the practice of begging for money to buy cheap fireworks to set off on Guy Fawkes Day. But also the poem itself might have been a kind of inspiration for this story. And I want to read uh, the the second section of the poem here uh, because we don't read nearly enough Eliot on this podcast. So here it is. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams, in death's dream kingdom, these do not appear. There, the eyes are sunlight on a broken column. There is a tree swinging, and voices are in the wind singing more distant and more solemn than a fading star. Let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises, rat's coat, crow skin, cross staves in a field behaving as the wind behaves no nearer, not that final meeting in the twilight kingdom. To me, this type of imagery it would be right at home in the kind of London that Mieville is describing here. Finally, there's there's the, the one last reference here to the Light Brigade, and this is in reference to the Household Cavalry. And the Charge of the Light Brigade is a poem about a really almost a, a suicide charge that took place during the Crimean War. That's really all I have to say about it is that, is that <laughs> Mayville's making this reference, but he's making it in reference to this moment of this insane appearance of this horseman who distracts the narrator long enough to, to lose track of Jake again. One of the things that all of these illusions that Mieville is making here, one of the things they all have in common is you know, disaster, right? The, the charge of the light brigade was a, an utter disaster, Chernobyl and so on. These are all disasters, right? T.S. Eliot, of course, uh, writing in one of the most you know, disastrous cataclysmic moments in human history. And his poetry is just suffused with, with that and, and is a huge part, I think, of, of why Eliot's poetry still you know, speaks to us now is because he's really... Uh, He's really capturing something important about modernity. And I think that that is what Mayville is trying to do here as well by showing us uh, not necessarily hollow men, but the hollowness of our civilization, the hollowness of our, our cities here in this almost post-industrial landscape that he's he's showing, this post-industrial, almost kind of ahistorical landscape here. And that Mieville is, is giving us this depiction of urban life in the 1990s at a moment when so many other people are predicting a bright and glorious future for classic liberalism now that the Soviet Union has collapsed and uh, free market societies and, and open societies have, have triumphed over uh, authoritarian communism. And now everyone on the planet's going to be united in this free market economy that's just going to be ever upward in, in scientific and technological progress and material comfort. And that now that there's no remaining ideology that anyone would want to kill anyone over. Events in history are just over, and we are all living at the beginning of a paradise. And it feels like Mieville is showing us here that that's not that that's not true. And he's drawing on all of this uh, literary and even mythological imagery to to capture some of that. And I, I find it breathtaking. Yeah, and he's also got the classic like kind of Gen X. The malaise in this story is too. Is like, yeah, let's hang out right, in bookshops, right. <laughs> but I don't really want to go back to your place, man. It's uh, it's cool. <laughs> it's, it's it's really great. 
All right. Well, we are almost at the end of this story. You brought up this Gaumont State Cinema, Brandon, which is indeed a, a gorgeous Art Deco building. And it turns out that this building is the thing that is actually keeping the narrator in Kilburn because he thinks that the building is communicating with him. You mentioned as well, Brandon, that this cinema has not been a cinema for a long time. And at the time that this story is set, it was a bingo hall. And so it had two neon signs on it that said, bingo. And the B in both of them is burnt out here in this story. And you know the lights blink. It's a blinking neon sign. And so what they say is, ingo, ingo. And the narrator thinks that this is a message for him, as in in, go, which is really to say, go in. But he also knows that the creatures, whatever these creatures are, they have taken over the building and he can hear them in there. But he can't find Jake, and so he's lonely. And so now he's just going to go into the Gaumont State Cinema. And he hopes this means that he actually somehow will be reunited with Jake. And the story ends with this line. See you soon, I hope, Jake. I hope. All my love. And then it's unsigned. And that's the end of the story. Right. He doesn't even know how the letter is going to find Jake, because even though, as we've seen with the tube stations and stuff like that, order has broken down, there's still some kind of other order underlying it on some level. I mean, at least he's the narrator is trying to find order in, in this chaos. And that's something that, you know, we'll, we'll talk about in this story when we get to our discussion, uh, I just love though, and I think it's very important here to point out the the way that these flashing signs uh, deliver a message to the narrator, basically are enticing the narrator to, to disappear in order maybe to give the narrator a sense of uh, some sort of symbolic order that still exists, even if all else is broken down. But before we get to the discussion, I want to, I want to tell you about one of the podcasts on the network that you may really want to check out. It's called ATOS. It's Glenn's podcast, uh, solo podcast, though he often has guests on there. And it took me a while to figure this out, but ATOS really stands for A to Z, not at Oz, where it could have been an L. Frank Bomb podcast or an <laughs> Australia pod, a travel podcast or a podcast covering the TV show Oz or even maybe episodes of Dr. Oz. No, instead, Atas is Glenn covering all the fantasy and science fiction books that he should have read long, long ago. Uh, and then he's often commissioned to read books that he should be reading now. Uh, but all jokes aside, the show itself works as a as a great reading list if you're looking to get into genres. Glenn, the breadth that you cover on that show is awesome. I've enjoyed guesting on it on a few occasions, and every episode I've really listened to, I've really enjoyed. You're a great reviewer, Glenn, and I think ATOS really lets you wear your reviewer cap and, and shine in that regard. Oh, well, I appreciate the the kind comments there, Brandon, though I think that it's time for a rebranding along the lines that uh, you have suggested there. Yeah, Atos is a, it's a Star Trek reference. Mr. Atos is the is a librarian character from the, the original series of, of Star Trek. And I do also cover weird fiction there. I mean, the bulk of it is fantasy and science fiction, uh, but there is quite a bit of weird fiction there. And in fact, I have done something by China Mayville. That was The City and the City, which is just a, a masterful book. And if you if you have not read that, I would encourage you to read that. Whether or not you have any interest in hearing what I have to say about the book, <laughs> that is just an awesome book. I've also done The Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard and, and, and some other weird fiction stories as well. But then also later this year, I'm going to be doing, uh, I think, a, a, an underread and perhaps underappreciated novella by Caitlin R. Kiernan. Uh, this is the book called The Dry Salvages, which uh, I just absolutely adored and I'm so excited to release my commentary on Into the, the World. Uh, I would love for people to check it out. I've got a link in the show notes so people can find it uh, rather easily. But uh, yeah, let's go. Uh, let's go have a discussion here for looking for Jake. Yeah, I, I have to say though, I'm super excited about the dry salvages. I, I, I'm going to be reading that along with you, and I cannot wait to to hear your take on it. But yeah, let's go back to the story that uh, we read today. Looking for Jake, Glenn. What do you think is going on here? You know, on one level, we have a, a kind of simple tale about someone who has lost their friend because that friend like moved to a different neighborhood in London. But what is really keeping them apart? 
in other words, like what, what's your take on the weird element of this story? I suppose this is kind of world building question. Yeah, I mean, you you invoked pterodactyls earlier, and it, that is kind of what it feels like. Uh, you know, I don't think that this is actually uh, a land before time kind of story <laughs> where like some cave opened up and it turned out there were pterodactyls in it and now they're out in the world. Like, I don't think that's the story. But, you know, there's demonic creatures. I mean, it feels like what's happened here is that something from a, a Hieronymus Bosch painting, you know, has been inflicted upon London. And in fact, you know, I say upon London, I think that's actually really one of the questions of the story is, is this something that's happening locally in London? Is this happening around the UK? Is this happening around the world? Those are questions that we just can't have any answer to. There's there's nothing, nothing in the story, nothing in the text that gives us any clues to that. But whatever it is, it does feel like it's not a natural phenomenon, right? That this is not a weird creatures have shown up, you know, creatures that we didn't know about have migrated to the city or something like that. That this is definitely something more mystical, something more numinous. And it does feel hellish in some way, like something to hell has opened up. I do think that the reference to Orpheus and Eurydice yeah, emphasizes that, right? That there is, you know, a literal uh, allusion to a story about descending into hell and uh, coming back from that that suggests hell here. But, you know, whatever it is that has actually happened, how this has actually happened, I mean, the effect is that there are monsters that are making life in London unlivable. Yeah, I think it it is it is, you know, kind of all over. Unfortunately, we're only given the point of view of this narrator who we've already talked about might be going mad, but that's just because of the things he experiences or they experience and see. But they do say this. They say I don't know how many people are disappeared in these strange days, but hundreds of thousands, millions of souls have gone. London's main streets, like the high road I can see from the front of my house, contain only a few anxious figures. And, and so, I mean, that's the, that's really the line that reminds me of living in the pandemic. But why do you think – so I think we can say maybe that this is a, a global event. The narrator certainly feels like Kilburn is the center of this event. But life is kind of going on as much as it can as normal. People are ignoring the fact that this major catastrophe has taken place. And I guess the story doesn't feel as weird to me as maybe it would have or is it maybe incoherent to me or ununderstandable to me as it would have if I had read this in 2015 or something, like, of course, people don't go on living after these insane events take place. But then Mieville references, you know, Union Carbide and Chernobyl uh, as touch points for this type of catastrophic breakdown. I, I wanted to get your sense, Glenn, of when you came across those catastrophic events in this story, how you thought they related to what the narrator was experiencing or talking about. These are the ways that the narrator is trying to make sense of the world. And of course, you know, these disasters, these were, were big, big news. And so I think they might even really have been the reference points for anyone in the, the mid to late 1990s who was trying to grapple with some kind of disaster. You would think of Union Carbide and you would think of Chernobyl if you're thinking in terms of environmental disasters. And you know, I think maybe that's actually one of the things that's interesting about those references is that the narrator is thinking about what's happened in London as a a type of environmental disaster, right? Where suddenly the place that you call home is unlivable. And something you hinted at, um, you know, teased a little bit in the the recap, Brandon, is that both of those environmental disasters were in some part, at least, owing to human neglect. And it does feel like that is here in the background of what's whatever's happening in London or, or possibly around the world, that these hell beasts, whatever they are, you know, from, from a Bosch painting, are here because whoever's in charge of our planet, whoever's in charge of London, has has neglected that there's some negligence that's going on here. And so now 
the earth is just not fit for us to to live on anymore. But this is happening so far above the narrator's pay grade that the narrator doesn't really understand anything that's going on, but yet can viscerally feel that it's not just that the world is breaking down, but that the whole system that maintained the world has broken down, and that's what has led to this this weird fiction disaster to begin with. Right. We get the sense that that, you know, if somebody did cause this, no one can really understand its effects. I want to read this line about the the breakdown that we get uh, on page 11 here. Here's what the narrator says. The crowd moved like none I had ever seen. There were no tides, no currents moving to and from the indicator board, the ticket, the ticket counter, the shops. No fractal patterns emerged from this mass. The flap of a butterfly's wings in one corner of the station would create no typhoons, no storms, not a sow of wind anywhere else. The deep order of chaos had broken down. And then later when he asks what happened, someone's response is something, there was a collapse, nothing works properly, there's been a a breakdown. And then it was a very inexact apocalypse. And so we get the sense that this is more metaphysical and spiritual. People going about in a purgatory, you know, stuck in their own despair, as we get in this text, more so than something that like the trains aren't running on time, the garbage isn't being picked up. You know, it's something else that's going on. And I think that's where we get these references to Eliot, Orpheus and Eurydice that we just discussed, but also maybe Yeats, whose shadow seems to be the longest in this story, whose sense of chaos in his poem, The Second Coming, is maybe most closely related to what Mieville describes in that that sense of even the underlying patterns of chaos have broken down. So I have to ask you, Glenn, how you think these allusions to poetry and maybe an allusion not made play into how Mieville is thinking about the, the weird apocalypse in this story? I have spoken elsewhere on the network about my deep love for the Roman poet Ovid and Ovid is where we get this story about Orpheus and Eurydice. Uh, these are characters who show up elsewhere in ancient literature, but this most famous story, this uh, trip by Orpheus down into the underworld in order to bring back the spirit of Eurydice, whom he's just married, that's something that we get from Ovid's book, The Metamorphosis. And because I love that book so much and love Ovid in general so much, that really became a, a central illusion here in the story and really flavored the way that I was thinking about this story and and had me really especially doubling down on the idea that whatever these creatures are, that they've come from hell in some way. But hearing you talk about how this story to you actually felt like Arthur Mackin, and even though you were invoking the inmost light and you know thinking about Mackin's writing about London... Coupling that then with just your invocation of Yeats here, I mean, I have to wonder now if this is not actually some kind of fairy story. Yeats is is famous for having been, I mean, well, he's famous for having been an awesome poet, but he's also famous, right, for having literally believed in fairies and written quite about quite a bit about that. And Arthur Mackin, of course, we've talked about a lot on the show here, uh, his work telling fairy stories that are set in the early 20th century. We've not done the biggest masterpieces of those yet, uh, but also then the way he couples those with Arthuriana. And uh, so we might, you know, think about this then in terms of the fact that there seems to be you know, a knight, a chivalric knight here also in the in the middle of the uh, of this story, even though then it turns out, you know, to be one of these, uh, these mounted uh, household guards, uh, but then bringing that back to the charge of the light brigade and so on. But I I wonder if this isn't supposed to be kind of suffused with fairy imagery here in some way, though the winged types of of fairies and that what's happening here actually is that this island was once the purview of fairies who then were kicked out by the arrival of Homo sapiens. This is something that shows up all over fairy lore. It's something that writers all throughout the the tradition of English literature have 
taken up. Uh, you know, Neil Gaiman, of course, very famously, <laughs> but also Rudyard Kipling, very famously, have taken these these themes up. And so it's not something I thought about while reading the story, but hearing you talk about these illusions, Brandon, now I'm starting to wonder if this the 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 apocalypse here this uh, uh, if this isn't actually just the fairies returning like it's the return of the fairies it's the vengeance of the revenge of the fairies here it, it feels I mean with these references to the people being disappeared and the kind of trickster things going on it certainly feels as though I mean it certainly feels that way it, earlier in the episode I referenced it, it just feels like it's the darkest of all fairy tales. Um, you know, we have this person who's essentially lost in the woods, except it's their own city or they're looking for someone who they think is lost in the woods and they're going to go get lost in the woods themselves. And so I think that all those elements really play into both the uncanniness of this story, but then these references is particularly to Elliot's hollow men talk about the, the metaphysical nature of this breakdown, how it's operating on a moral level or a spiritual level rather than a material level. And that's something Yates was also super into. I want to, before we kind of wrap up here, ask you about the, you know, the, the sort of phenomenological aspect of this story, how it feels for the narrator to live in this world. Why do you think it's important to the story that the narrator not find Jake? I mean, we could easily imagine a different type of story where they find each other and go through the apocalypse together, and maybe we could all feel good about that. But why? What is it about this particular type of breakdown that makes it almost inevitable that the narrator will not find Jake? Is it some flaw in the narrator's love of Jake, or is it something about the apocalypse? I have to think that this is something about the apocalypse. Uh, all, all of the illusions that we've been talking about and and uh, and our attempts to explain what is meant to be unexplainable here and thinking about what actually, in a concrete sense, is happening here in this apocalypse, all of that supplies this mood to the story that is really uncomfortable, really disturbing, and and also then really brilliant. I mean, this is an absolutely amazing story because of the feelings that Mieville is able to evoke here, this, this discomfort, this gnawing sense that there's something just not right with the world, but I can't put my finger on what it is. I mean, I think that that's really what Mieville is going for here, that this is a commentary on what life is like in London in the 1990s, which I think then, you know, we can talk about, which I think then we could extrapolate to really just being kind of anywhere in the the Western world in the 1990s, this kind of, you know, post-Cold War liminal 1990s, uh, yeah, Gen Xers, as you invoked earlier, Brandon, kind of <laughs> coming of age at this point, and what does the world actually feel like to live in? And it does feel a little bit broken down. Like I, I think I, I get this. I remember where I was in 1998 when this story was published. And I remember having some of these feelings too about the world being a little bit broken down. And I think that one of the things that Mievel is is doing here, right? He's showing us this cinema that's no longer a cinema. That's just this bingo hall. But it's a bingo hall where the flashing neon signs don't even work properly, right? And none of that has anything even to do with this apocalypse. But nonetheless, here, in the mid to late 1990s, as Mieville is writing this story, it does feel like this civilization of modernity is actually starting to spiral downward, like that it's it's not going up the way that so many people have predicted now that the Soviet Union has collapsed and the Cold War has been been won. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that I think Mieville is looking at the world around him and trying to describe what it feels like and loneliness and isolation, I think, is a real part of that world, that one of the breakdowns of our world is the breakdown of society, the breakdown of community, that people are people are isolated from their friends and their their families and isolated by their jobs, isolated by our world of entertainment, isolated by a lot of factors. And I think that that isolation, that loneliness, the, the quest to find the one person you care about an impossible quest to find the one person you care about is really the core experience even of this uh, apocalypse here. And the inability of the narrator to find Jake, to find the one person who matters, this is what 
leads the narrator to just give up and say, fine, I'll, I'll go into the theater. And it feels in some sense like that's kind of a metaphor for the world that Miaville sees around him. I think it's absolutely a metaphor. I think one of the kind of core anxieties looking back at Gen X uh, film and, and, and fiction and storytelling is that sense that we're all going to have to grow up and get jobs and have families and we're never going to be friends anymore. That anxiety about friendship that really feels like you found you had this found family experience and it's going to end because you have to grow up at some point. And the question of why can't I just be with my found family all the time, right, is is kind of this core anxiety of this fiction. And so what's left is trying to keep up with these common experiences that will help us bond with one another. And and what that is, is the giving up of local community, uh, of, of powerful bonds, and trading that in for participating in a symbolic order, basically, in, in keeping up with these common experiences so that we can essentially form really quick relationships based on commonalities with, with people we might come across once we disintegrate our found families, you know? And I think that that, that's really what it feels like is going on in this story. I mean, to use like stupid theory terms, which is what I'm doing here, symbolic (laughs) order and stuff like that, you know, but really what's happening is, is that the narrator is saying, I I have to give up this friendship because I don't know if it's going to even exist anymore. I can't even go to this guy's neighborhood because it's such a hassle and partially because of winged beasts, but like also we all know it's a hassle to get to somebody else's neighborhood when you live in a city. Um, and and trading that in for a sign that's telling him what to do with his life, literally. So he's just, that's really what's going on in the story. That's kind of the, I think, the phenomenological roots that Miaville is exploring here, this kind of core Gen X anxieties. And I think it's brilliantly done. And if our reading of this is is correct, then Mieville really had his finger on the pulse because he's he's completely predicted a kind of ennui that exists here for us in the the twenty twenties and and heavily exacerbated by the pandemic. Of course, this sense of well, I I, I can't have a, a community. There's no community for me. There's no society for me. But uh, you know, I've got Netflix, so it's fine. Yeah, and Marvel it's keeps fine. on making movies. So I'll I'll be able to go to a party and say like, did you see the new Incredible Hulk movie? And that'll be something to talk about. But you know, where's that 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 longing to connect with somebody that's at the core of it is really kind of traded in for these different types of shallow experiences. I mean, even bingo is a as a communal experience as it is, it's not a, a real f- former of communities, so to speak. And on that happy note, as we all long for real friendships and the breakdown of community, we should call it a day. So that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Don't forget to check out ATAS, a great podcast to give you a reading list, but also to hear Glenn's great reviews of stuff you've been meaning to read and have read along with him. Next time here on Elder Sign, we're going to be back with two stories by Italo Calvino. These are the first two chapters of his book, The Castle of Crossed Destinies. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>